we have tried to tailor this in such a way that the information you get today would be it's enough for you to do your exam questions and understand your exam questions. Um, we want to make it as direct as possible. We also hope that the things that you don't get, you will revise in your text. Be efficient with your time. Um, we put in a couple interesting clicker questions. The, one that I, the ones that we put in, they're very similar to the exam quality questions. Um, so it kind of gives you an idea as to what to expect. And the ones we'll do on Friday will be even more exam-like. I'm saying this now because we're not being recorded and that way Rayburn can't say that I've said this. So we'll try to make it as direct as possible for you. Um, today has, today's lecture has a, a little bit of clinical in it. Yesterday was an overview. Um, the title slide on the lecture was uh, Introduction and Concepts. It was general concepts. So the level of detail that you have to remember from yesterday is minimal. These lectures today we want you to pay a little bit more attention to the anatomy associated with with what we talk about today. Um, we start in one minute. Any questions before we begin? Sweet. That means everyone would have pre-read. And we have this thing down. Next week is killer. I noticed that every day of the week, except Friday, I think you guys are occupied. It's going to leave you with limited time to um, focus on the embryology that they're going to give you next week. Um, that we know is a little bit difficult but I think you guys will be able to get through it. Use your weekend wisely to revise this content and the content from Histo that you receive, because next week you'll be in a little bit of a pinch. Let's begin this one. Um, I don't see the red light yet. Anyway, we have a bunch of slides which tells us our objectives. Again, the assigned reading in this, it's actually important I would go through it and look at the things that I didn't get in the lecture. Um, go through your objectives. Your exam questions are always taken based on the objectives. So that's one way of kind of knowing what you're going to see or what you're going to get. And there's a whole bunch of them, so you'll read that sometime in the future. Let's start off with a recap of our male internal organs. So internally, we're going to be looking at organs like the prostate gland, seminal vesicles. We'll also take a look at the epididymis. We will mention the testes as well. All of these organs, they participate in the male anatomy. As we go along, we'll look at the anatomical relationships of each of them. We'll start off with the testes and get them out of the way. As you guys know, these are two ovoid-shaped organs. They're located in the scrotum externally. However, because of their embryological origin and development, we classify them as internal organs. This is the site of sperm production, so it makes all of our sperm and testicular fluid. The testes, they enjoy an extremely rich blood supply. Um, the testicular arteries, they come from the abdominal aorta and they make their way down into, via the inguinal ligament into the spermatic cord and down to the testes. The venous drainage of the testes is a little bit more interesting. It's drained by the pampiniform venous plexus. And this pampiniform venous plexus is a group of veins that wrap around um, the cord itself. And as they make their way around, they provide what's called a countercurrent heat exchange mechanism. What that basically means is warm blood going down via the um, testicular artery makes its way to the testes while venous blood, which is much cooler, makes its way in the opposite direction. As they pass by each other, heat is exchanged and that's one of the ways the testes can be cooled down. Similarly, the testes can also be warmed up as well by contractions of the cremasteric muscle. That we, can, we can actually practice that by doing the cremasteric reflex. And if you want, when you go home, you can practice on yourselves. I'll be fine. 
Now that pampiniform venous plexus, being a series of about 8 to 12 veins, as it makes its way up to the superficial ring, those 8 to 12 veins are going to start merging into about 3 or 4. And as they go closer and closer to the, to the inside of the pelvis, they merge until they become a single vein which enters the, the deep ring and it makes its way all the way back up. The right testicular vein, as we know, drains directly into the vena cava, and the left one drains into the left renal artery. So that's where the nutcracker syndrome comes in. It's mesoaortic compression of the left renal artery, limiting blood flow from the left testes back up. There are several pathologies that we can mention. Um, with the pampiniform venous plexus, you can have varicoceles, which is just a dilatation of those. It gives the testes a sack of worms appearance, so if you hold on to it and palpate it, it feels like if it has worms. Anyone ever go fishing and have like little worms in there? Excellent. Let's move on. From the testes, we lead into the, it, the epididymis will lead into the ductus difference, which is a muscular tube. It has well-developed smooth muscle, um, which under sympathetic innervation is going to contract very, very quickly, expelling or pro propelling the sperm up towards the seminal vesicles. Um, that, that musculature is to counteract gravity. So in, in its walls, when you do history, you'll notice it has multiple layers of smooth, smooth muscle in, it, in its walls. The ductus difference to get to the seminal vesicles has to pass through the spermatic cord, um, from there into the superficial and then deep ring. As it approaches the seminal vesicles, it's going to dilate, forming an ampulla of the seminal vesicles. It is going to be supplied by the artery of the ductus difference. Was that my device or? It wasn't you? Yes, it was me. Sorry. Apologies. As we were saying, as the testes approaches the seminal vesicle, it dilates. That dilated proximal portion of the ductus difference is called the ampulla of the ductus difference. It is going to then join the duct of the seminal vesicle to become the ejaculatory duct which penetrates the prostate and empties into the prostatic urethra. In terms of its anatomical relations, the, the ampulla of the ductus difference is found just medial to the seminal vesicles. It is posterior to the prostate gland. Now we get to the seminal vesicles. Seminal vesicles are actually tubular structures. They're about 10 to 15 centimeters long, but they're extremely coiled. After that coiling process, they're encapsulated in a connective tissue capsule, which limits the size to about 4 cm, sometimes 5 cm. They're responsible for producing seminal fluid. Seminal fluid represents about two-thirds or about 60% of the ejaculate. It's rich in fructose. It has some proteolytic enzymes and a whole bunch of other stuff previously. Um, it also has um, pros uh, prostaglandins as well. That seminal fluid um, represents the secretions from the seminal fluid can represent the pre-ejaculate that we normally see. In terms of its anatomical relations, the seminal vesicles are located just posterior to the prostate gland. Medial to them, we're going to find the ductus difference or the ampulla of the ductus difference. Posterior to the seminal vesicles, we're going to find the rectovesical fascia. And behind that, we have the rectum. The tips of the seminal vesicles go all the way up to touch the peritoneum that eventually covers those structures. And just anterior to that is where we can see the ureter is actually penetrating and making their way in. The blood supply of the seminal vesicles um, is going to get supplied from the inferior vesicle artery, which also does the prostate, and middle rectal arteries can also bring blood supply in. Um, they're going to drain 
the lymphatics basically drain into iliac nodes because it's an intrapelvic structure. We're looking at a seminal vesiculogram, and this is done by actually putting in an ultrasound probe transurethrally a contrast to find the seminal vesicles. Contrast medium is injected directly into the vesicles themselves, and we take an image, like a radiograph, for example. The classic radiological appearance of the seminal vesicles is described as a bow tie appearance. Um, I've looked at thousands of these images, and I probably saw two or three that looks like a bow tie. It's just something to remember. It's going to be feathery. It's going to be, we can see the coils. And the different areas where we have different radio densities represents areas where we have um, stroma and parenchyma, or glandular tissue. As we light this Christmas tree up, we can identify our ductus difference at the top, which eventually goes down to empty, empty into its ampulla, which joins the seminal vesicles themselves. The ejaculatory duct is eventually formed, and that empties into the prostate itself. Let's take another image. This one, we're looking at an axial cut. And in this axial cut, we can quickly identify the femoral head. It gives us an idea where we're at. We know that we are somewhere below the bladder. So it's likely that we're cutting just at the bottom of the bladder as it goes towards the apex. The rectum is just posterior, and that little bow tie in the middle is your seminal vesicle. Here we have the perfect bow tie appearance, where we can see the irregularities on the surface of that seminal vesicle itself. Posterior to it, what's that empty hole we have at the back of it? The rectum, perfect. The prostate. Prostate is described as almond-shaped, but it is, it, um, about, it's about the size of a walnut. The guys who described this were probably having fun with planters mixed nuts or something. I'm not sure what they were doing. It's, if you look at it in lab, what you'll notice is it's more like an inverted pyramid, where the base of that pyramid is touching the pelvic diaphragm. The, the bladder is located immediately superior to the prostate, posterior to which you have the seminal vesicles. And the prostate itself is responsible for producing prostatic fluid. It represents about 30% of the ejaculate. It produces this milky white alkaline solution that's made to counteract the acidity, the natural acidity of the vagina. The posterior aspect of the prostate is going to be intimately associated with the ampulla of the rectum. What does that mean for us clinically? We can palpate it during, during the DRE. The ejaculatory duct is a feature that you'll be able to see in the prostate as it passes through it to drain into the ureter. Here we have another um, image showing us internal male anatomy. We'll start off, this looks like an MRI because fat looks really nice and bright and bone looks dark. We'll start by finding a fixed landmark that we can work with. That fixed landmark is usually your pubic symphysis. We know behind the pubic symphysis we have the retropubic space. And that retropubic space superiorly is going to have the urinary bladder. And inferior to it, we're going to find the prostate itself. As you move on, we can see the rectum. And that little discontinuity located between our rectum and our prostate is called the... Well, that little discontinuity is the vesicorectal pouch that we have in men. Penis, which is our external organ, should be easy enough for us to recognize. We have a similar image taken from a different patient. Again, we find our pubic symphysis. There you have your urinary bladder. Prostate just beneath it. And if you look at the consistency of the prostatic tissue, you'll notice it is extremely dark compared to what's immediately behind it. Anyone wants to take a guess at what's behind there? 
Someone said seminal vesicle. I might agree with that. So if that's your prostate, that's your rectum. In between prostate and rectum, we should find that little separation which delineates where our seminal vesicles are located. Penis, again, is on the outside. Here's yet another one. Let's light the Christmas tree up. So again, prostate, bladder, I'm sorry, bladder, prostate, rectum, seminal vesicle, and penis. These images, um, if, you, if you recall from your MSK block and so on, we take the images for practical exams from the lecturers, especially the ones that have been labeled. On the internal structure of the prostate, it's a glandular organ which is reinforced by fibromuscular stroma. That fibromuscular stroma actually lobulates and septates the organ, creating multiple lobes. Posteriorly, we'll notice that we can see the openings for the ejaculatory ducts coming from your left and where your left and right seminal vesicles meet your left and right um, ampullas of the vast difference. On the inside in the prostatic urethra, there are multiple openings um, where you have several glands from the prostate's lobes opening up. Um, that large dilated space is, a, is called a sinus. Um, there's a little bump in there called a seminal colliculus. The, these features you probably will not see in lab or in gross anatomy with us. From that prostatic urethra, everything is dumped. Fluids will then go into the membranous urethra, eventually where you have the openings for your bulbourethral glands, and eventually make its way down into penile or spongy urethra. We have two different classifications for the internal structure of the prostate. We describe it as lobes or zones. Um, anatomically, we have, we have three lobes. Um, histologically or pathologically, we describe several zones. Um, these zones represent areas where you have different um, proportions of glandular tissue. And the zonal di distribution or zonal arrangement is especially good for when, you're, when you have um, prostatic cancer and you're trying to classify and maybe um, categorize that. The peripheral zone is the largest one. Um, it is located most posteriorly, and it accounts for about 70% of the volume of the entire prostate gland itself. From your peripheral zone is where you have, because it has the most glandular tissue, it is likely that's where you have prostate cancer being developed. Um, that concept is something that we test and something that's tested on the boards as well. The central zone takes up about 25% of the volume. It contains the ejaculatory duct. Um, the transitional zone makes up the remaining five. So, peripheral zone is the largest one. It's about 70%. That's where prostatic cancer develops. That central zone is about 25%, and that's where you're going to find the ejaculatory ducts. And then the transition zone makes up the next 5%. Anteriorly, where the prostate is going to interface with the retropubic space, there is no glandular tissue. That anterior um, region, it just has fibromuscular stroma. These zones, um, based on their distribution, can have different disease processes. We've already mentioned the um, prostate cancer. You can, the other pathology would be BPH. The DRE, um, sounds like that song. The digital rectal exam is one of the most important tools and lately it, it, it's not popular with, with young physicians or with modern medicine. We've been using a lot of imaging modalities to diagnose this. Some people have been playing with PSA levels, but one of the best ways of determining what's going on in the process is that actually reaching in there and palpating it itself. 
The prostate normally has a spongy appearance. It's about the size of a walnut, maybe a golf ball, depending on where your walnuts come from. And it has a spongy, bouncy feel to it. So once, it, once you insert and you make contact with the prostate, you'll be able to feel it. It also feels smooth and irregular. And what we palpate during the, DR, the DRE is actually that posterior aspect or the peripheral zone of the um, prostate itself, which is excellent for determining if you have cancer. Assuming that that prostate is cancerous, you're going to have a lot of cellular changes, cell changes with the stroma as well. Those cell populations, once they start growing out of control and that growth is unregulated, you have little clusters that grow faster than others. The volume increases, so we'll have a larger diameter, we'll have a larger curvature when we sweep our finger back and forth. It suddenly becomes rock hard because all those empty spaces inside which made it bouncy are suddenly filled with cells, and it has that bumpy, nodular, irregular appearance to it. With BPH, you can have an increase in volume, maybe an increase in consistency, but the posterior aspect generally remains smooth. So clinically, it's a wonderful tool to use, especially if you're in a resource-stricken environment like the Caribbean. Now, some of the structures that we can palpate are the prostate. We can palpate the seminal vesicles and the um, rectovesical pouch. Palpating anything beyond that, you'll need fingers the size of Kevin Durant's. Forgive me. In the females, structures that we can palpate, we can um, palpate the posterior vaginal walls. The cervix can be manipulated indirectly at that point, producing cervical motion tenderness. And we also will be able to palpate the um, rectouterine pouch of Douglas. The reason why we're mentioning this here now is in PID or in any condition where you have pathological fluid accumulating within that rectouterine pouch, it has a tendency to irritate the, um, the, the peritoneum itself. By placing the finger and changing the contours or stretching it by pushing on it, you um, actually provoke pain or tenderness. And that way you can know if you have a pathological condition or not. Let's try a clicker question, guys. We're expecting 100% on this one. Has anyone neglected to click in? We can probably save these 22 seconds. Or do we write it out? Okay, what's the answer? D, seminal vesicles. And yet, 88%, that's not too bad. Um, the testes does produce a very small amount of fluid called testicular fluid. 
but it's mostly going to be spermatozoa that's in there. The ductus difference, that one was just a random click. Um, remember, I know the click, we can find the clicker numbers and trace you down, right? So, <laughs> D is our answer. Let's take a look at our pathological slides. We are going to compare and contrast BPH versus prostatic cancer. Um, almost every male in here or every man in here will be stricken with BPH as we get older. My question is, why don't we have BPH now? We have probably the highest levels of testosterone that we'll ever experience. Um, why do we not see BPH in younger people? It has to do with the production of enzymes, uh, specifically your aromatase enzymes and your 5-alpha um, reductase enzymes. The, the quantities or concentrations increase with age. So as you get older, you have in, um, increased circulating um, volume of those hormones, or enzymes rather, and they act on the testosterone producing the met metabolites that are necessary to proliferate the, um, the growth in the B BPH. Previously, like when I did medicine, we were told very specifically that with BPH, it affects the fibromuscular stroma and prostate cancer affect affects the glandular structures. Um, this has been disproven based on that first statement that we have. Hyperplasia of the glandular epi epithelium is one of the hallmarks of BPH now, and that is currently in first stage to the boards and most of the other boards' um, questions. This doesn't mean that the fibromuscular stroma does not proliferate as well. In cancer, what we see is proliferation of the glandular structures or the epithelial structures with minimal fibromuscular stroma involvement. In BPH, it's both, but it's predominantly epithelial or glandular structures that are growing. The zones that are affected in BPH are your transitional and periurethral zones. The periurethral zone, like the name suggests, is going to be intimately surrounding the urethra, and the transitional zone is just wrapping around that. Imagine you have proliferation and growth of the cells and stroma in that area. Eventually, that growth is going to, it's going to start trying to grow outwards first, but it's going to be limited by that false or pseudo-capsule that the prostate has around it. Once that growth is limited outwards, it's going to start pushing back in on itself, and eventually it's going to start compressing the urethra. And, and if untreated, it's going to cause a urinary obstruction at some point. On DRE, the prostate feels large, bulky, but still has that spongy um, feel to it and it does not feel nodular. You will have an increase in the diameter or your sweep distance be it from side to side. In prostate with prostate cancer, it is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in men. It affects the peripheral zone simply because the peripheral zone has most of your glands. It remains relatively asymptomatic. It's a silent killer. On DRE, prostate is going to feel hard like a rock. It's going to be nodular and can be enlarged as well. Any questions so far? Perfect. Here's an image showing us um, benign prostatic hyperplasia. Our prostate is an, uh, shows us an enlarged transitional zone. Just posterior to that, we can see the peripheral zone. Because it's BPH, it's limiting itself to transitional and periurethral zones. So you'll notice that the peripheral zone actually remains fairly normal. If not, the size, it's being mechanically impinged by that growing um, transitional zone that we have. The puborectalis muscle is arcing back surrounding that perianal ring. And we can see that little fissure over there is our urethra. So we'll notice already our urethra is being compressed by the, by the, the cells in the transitional zone causing BPH. 
Now, whenever that happens, we're, we, we have an option to do TERPs. But before we ever get to TERPs, we're going to try to treat this thing medically first. We'll use as much drugs as we can to reduce the levels of circulant testosterone or their metabolites. If that doesn't work and it continues to compress and it impinges it or occludes it, we can do a um, transurethral resection procedure or, or transurethral um, resection of the prostate, which is called TERP. Um, the tool that you're going to use is called um, a resectoscope. It has multiple ports on it. It gives you like a 30-degree field of vision, so you can just visualize um, your prostate. And what you basically do is you either use a laser or an electrocautery to cut away the tissue and create a new opening for, um, for urine to flow. Um, this procedure is not without complications, um, but at the same time, it's not inherently dangerous. Your most common complication is bleeding. So that's number one. Clot retention, um, that's also another problem as well. Because you have bleeding, you can obviously get clots. You can also have um, bladder wall injury from perforation. And even though it's a relatively common practice, in, in the hands of a savage, a nail can destroy an army. Right? So be very careful. Because we are penetrating um, urethral sphincters, we, we actually have the possibility of damaging those by stretching them out. And you can also have something called retrograde ejaculation occurring if the pathway due to preprostatic sphincter injury. So most common complication would be bleeding. Perfect. Let's do a question. Okay, so we can eliminate two right off the bat. Which two are we taking out first? B and C. And now we have two possibilities where we can have our distribution. This one might be a little bit tricky. Key word here is intermittent um, leakage. Um, the external urethral sphincter, it's, it's somatic control, it's voluntary. The internal one is involuntary. If it, what it does, um, when that bladder, when urine is produced and it trickles into the bladder, it remains closed until the bladder walls begin to stretch out. Once that bladder wall stretches beyond a certain point, the receptors get, it triggers the, the cells and it relaxes and the bladder voids itself. If damaged, you will have urine leaking almost constantly or intermittently rather. 
I think the best answer here would be D, although A is not a bad choice. You will go with D next time. Look at the keyword. Yeah? Um, questions like this are, the concepts are so easy, but if you haven't seen the question and haven't practiced the question, it suddenly becomes something where you can lose a point. Hit the grays. Let's move on. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but what makes you, what triggers it, that external sphincter? It's when fluid gets to it, to its level, and it starts stretching its walls out. So if you're leaking fluid intermittently, the second fluid accumulates at the external sphincter, it triggers, it opens, and it leaks. Yeah? That's a very good question, though. A question like that one, um, I think I might have got the wrong two in an exam, too. I would have overthought the question. Um, but the external one, it usually, it's somatic muscle and it usually retains its control a little bit better unless you have damage to one of the nerves or let's say the pudendal nerve, that's when you'll have drama associated. If such is the case, the question will give you more details on to, uh, with respect to that damage. It will give you another symptom that tells you your pudendal nerve fibers are damaged and that will lead you towards the external sphincter. As is, internal was probably the best answer for it. Continuing, guys. We're looking at the blood supply of the prostate. Um, it comes from the inferior vesicle artery, which gives most of its supply. I've read that the middle um, rectal artery can also send some arterial buds to it to supply it as well. It's drained by the vesicle um, and prostatic venous plexuses. These can communicate with the external valveless venous plexus of Batson, like we mentioned before. You can also have communications with the internal venous plexus of Batson. We know that our nerve fibers are parasympathetic, sympathetics. They're all going to make their way down to the prostate to supply it. And they actually travel in that layer that's just between the prostate itself and the capsule that surrounds it. Those fibers actually penetrate and they actually make their way to the penis itself. Some of them can go towards the bladder where we have our sphincters. And what can happen during BPH or during cancer is as that organ grows, because the nerve fibers are running on the surface of the prostate itself, the organ grows, the nerve begins to stretch. And it stretches to the point where it can, it can no longer transmit a signal because there are actual interruptions in between it. And that's when we're going to see symptoms like erectile dysfunction and probably urinary incontinence as well. Prostatic cancer metastasis, this is definitely a problem. Um, again, because of all its venous interconnections and the lack of valves in that region of the body, blood can go anywhere. Basically, we'll have our venous plexus of Batson again being involved in this. In terms of where prostate cancer can metastasize, bone is usually one of the first places that it will go, um, which is why we would recommend whenever you suspect prostate cancer or you're, re you're just diagnosing a case, one of the things that you should do is probably take an x-ray of the pelvis or take an x-ray of the abdomen to see if you have any bony mets along the pelvis or vertebral column itself. So common sites for metastasis, like we mentioned, would be bone, Obviously, lymph nodes via lymphatic transmission or lymphatic conduction of those cells, it can make its way up to the lungs and eventually the liver and brain. There are different rates of survivability for this. Um, bone, usually you have about 21 months. Um, I think with liver, you have 14 months. And I, brain, can't remember how long that one is. But there are different rates for it, and I'm sure we can look that up at some point. 
One of the things to remember, bone is one of the more common sites. It's one of the questions that they'll ask as well. And your protocol, do an x-ray. This lymphatic drainage is fairly straightforward. The prostate is an internal or intrapelvic organ. It's supplied by the internal iliac branches of the internal iliac artery. So which nodes are, are its um, lymphatics going to go to first? Good, internal iliac nodes. <laughs> the testes themselves, they drain into lumbar nodes because of where they would have developed. Seminal vesicles, ductus dif difference, because they're intrapelvic, again, they all go to the internal iliac group of nodes. That little note, footnote on the bottom of your slide, um, that's, take it as notes, yeah? Now we move on to the urogenital triangle. You've seen this image before. It's showing us the urogenital triangle of the male and showing us the structures that make up the root of the penis. Now there is some confusion from talking to you guys yesterday, like what is the, what's the crus, what's the, the corpus cavernosum, and what's the ischiocavernosus muscle? The crura of the penis, um, they represent the two lateral structures that are going to anchor the penis onto, the root of the penis onto the body wall itself. These two crura begin as fibrous strips, almost ligamentous in appearance. And they start at the ischial tuberosities, and they run alongside, just parallel, to the ischiopubic ramus. As they make their way up to the corpus cavernosum itself, those, that, that fibrous tissue suddenly starts transitioning and becoming something more similar to the corpus cavernosum that we know, something with more dilated spaces. So closer to the actual root where it anchors itself onto the ischial tuberosities, it's fibrous in nature, but as it moves outwards, it becomes more like the corpus cavernosum. On top of the corpus cavernosum is where you're going to find your ischial cavernosus muscle. The other structure representing the root of the penis is the bulb of the penis, which is covered by the bulbospongiosus muscle. That muscle develops some two um, symmetric halves which merge in the center. And wherever they merge, there's a tiny ridge that forms, and it forms a, a little wraith that we see. You can, if you look at the ventral surface of the penis, you'll be able to trace it all the way down where it goes and anchors itself onto the perineal body or perineal membrane. Here we have an image, again, showing us the musculature. All the skin and fascia and so on have been stripped out. So we can see that the crura are now covered by the ischiocavernosus muscles. The bulb is covered by the bulbospongiosus muscle. And both of those are going to be supplied. Um, they get their nerve supply from perennial branches of the pudendal nerve, which takes its spinal nerve roots from S2 to S4. Contractions of these two muscles during ejaculation is going to help expel any residual semen, seminal fluid or semen that's in the urethra itself. And when we're not doing that, contractions of the bulbospongiosus will help us void urine that's left in there. This image, um, we have pieces like this in the lab, um, small lithotomy pieces that we've developed, and we test on them. So this image will help us a lot in terms of identifying where those little muscles are. So you can take a look at this and go find a piece in the lab and check it out. Just posterior to the bulb of the penis is where you'll be able to see the transverse perennial muscle. And just behind that is where the mass or the bulk of the perennial body would be. Now, in terms of if we had to palpate that perennial body, um, it would be that little bump that we find between the root of the penis and the rectum itself. I'm not sure when you're going to get an opportunity to palpate that. Continuing with ex external male genitalia, um, the penises uh, and testes, obviously, they make up the external male genitalia, and the penis is covered by skin. 
that skin is going to be supplied by branches of the pudendal nerve again, specifically the dorsal nerve of the penis. That gives us the sensations that stimulate us whenever it is touched. The prepuce represents the skin that surrounds the gland's penis. That's the part that we remove in circumcision or um, male genital mutilation. Um, concerning that circumcision, um, it's practiced religiously. We do it to our little boys whenever we have difficulty retracting it. Um, but what, what we're noticing now, a lot of papers are being written on it now where we're seeing people in their 30s developing erectile dysfunction for no apparent reason. A lot of it has to do with the circumcision and how much skin was removed. Like back in the day, um, they would have taken almost everything off, any excess, why leave it? However, the skin, the prepuce, serves a vital function. A lot of the very sensitive nerve endings that help stimulate the penis are located on the glands itself. Um, the prepuce provides protection for that. When it's completely removed, that gland's penis is constantly making contact with fabric from clothing. Whenever we run or walk or sit down on overtime, it's going to desensitize it. Um, and as you know, we experiment on ourselves a lot, so over time, we also desensitize it as well. Take home message, whenever we're doing a circumcision, be very careful with how much you remove. Um, be mindful of that child and his later development. Another um, structure associated with fixing the penis onto the body wall is the suspensory ligament of the penis. It attaches to the pubic symphysis. Um, it is continuous with box fascia. Box fascia is one of the investing layers around the penis just deep to um, Dartle's fascia or Coley's fascia, as some, some can call it. What that allows is as the penis, as the erection starts and the penis starts growing, box fascia is going to limit how much, where that blood can go and it directs it outwards. And as it stretches out, it is going to then stretch on the suspensory ligament of the penis, which is what brings it in, the vent, um, in that ventral position that we know when we have an erection. Suspensory ligament is made up of type 1 collagen. Over time, as we age, type 1 collagen ages, it stretches out. So over time, you'll notice that the erection no longer goes up to the anterior abdominal wall. Instead, it hangs a little bit low. Continuing with the external male genitalia, um, we'll take a closer look at the arrangement of these erectile bodies and the penis itself. All of the layers of skin and fascia have been removed. And what we have here is the glands with the corpus spongiosum and the two corpora cavernosa. Like we mentioned before, the two corpora cavernosa begin as the crew of the penis at the level of the ischial tuberosities, and then they, as they make their way up to the ischial pubic rami, it's going to transition into the corpus cavernosum. They start off as two separate slips, which eventually merge in the midline. They eventually make their way all the way up to where they tuck into, into the glans penis itself. The corpus spongiosum begins at the bulb of the penis, also called the bulb of the corpus spongiosum. Um, it, um, it elongates, moves anteriorly, and dilates to form the head of gland's penis. The two erectile bodies um, are your corpora cavernosa. Um, during, during erection, all three corpora actually get an increase in blood flow. But the two that actually produce the erection are the ones that have the most um, Blood flow to them will be your corpora cavernosa, and that's because they have more dilated spaces on the inside and more channels for blood to flow. If they all reacted the same way to an increase in blood flow in the penis, it, it would mean that ejaculation would be impossible, simply because if the, corpora, the corpus spongiosum, if it dilates too much, it will eventually compress the penile or spongiurethra, and nothing will be able to exit. 
So there you have your cruce of the corpus cavernosum. Eventually, once that leaves the body wall, it becomes the corpus cavernosum proper. Now, generally, we said before, the corpus spongiosum, it has much smaller spaces, and because it contains the urethra, again, we do not want it to get blocked during that process. The ridge that surrounds glans penis, um, glans penis is called the corona. And on the tip of glans penis, there is a tiny opening where you have an external urethral meatus. If you go just deep to that, there's a little dilated fossa on the inside, which is called the fossa navicularis. The fossa navicularis is where the cells that line the urethra change. So at that point, it's going to be squamous cells lining it. Let's take a look at the internal structure of the penis. And this one is a little important. So as you know now, we have these three corpora, two erectile bodies, your two corpora, corpus spongiosum. All of these bodies are surrounded intimately by a connective tissue layer called the tunica albuginea. So immediately around your corpora, you have the tunica albuginea. On the, uh, on the outside of all three, which are surrounded by tunica albuginea, you have box fascia surrounding that. Just outside of box fascia, you have a little bit of loose areola connective tissue. And then on the outside, again, you have another fascia layer, which is dartos fascia or coli's fascia. Like we mentioned yesterday, dartos fascia and coli's fascia, it's essentially the same structure. Um, what's the only difference between them? Dartos fascia has muscle fibers in it. Coley's fascia is um, devoid of, of muscle fibers. So, from inside out, immediately surrounding the corpora, we have the tunica albuginea. Surrounding that tunica albuginea, you have box fascia. And surrounding that, you have um, the dartos fascia on the outside. Oh, wait, my bad. Something else we should look at are the arrangements of the um, blood vessels in here as well. You have the deep dorsal artery of the penis, which goes into the, corpora, um, the corpora cavernosa. And upon entering, it divides into two different types of arteries. So that, that deep dorsal artery is going to divide in a group of art, one group, which is going to end as capillaries, which open up into the spaces that we have in the corpus cavernosum. And the other group of arteries become what's called helicine arteries. These are the ones that respond to the parasympathetic and sympathetic impulses that actually, that actually provoke the erection. We'll talk about those in a, in a few seconds. Here we have a section through the penis again where the corpora spongiosa have been reflected and a cut has been made, um, the corpus cavernosa have been reflected and a cut has been made through the corpus spongiosum showing the different parts of our male urethra. We can start with our prostatic urethra, which leads to the membranous urethra, surrounded by those bulbo-urethral glands, which empty into there. Then you have the penile or spongy urethra, which goes all the way up to the fossa navicularis. It opens as the external meatus on glans penis itself. The corpus cavernosum, like we said before, is the reflected one on both sides. This is a normal urethrogram, and this we're familiar with from our renal system. We have a contrast medium that's ingested and eventually makes its way down into the urinary system. We can identify our bladder, our prostatic urethra, membranous urethra, bulbous portion of the spongy urethra, and your penile portion or your spongy urethra proper. Um, there are two divisions to the male urethra. There's an anterior and a posterior division. And these divisions are very important when it comes to classifying or identifying the structures that are damaged during anterior and posterior urethral tears. 
The anterior division of the urethra is going to be comprised of the penile and bulbar urethra up to the level of the urogenital diagram or at the level of the urogenital diagram. Should I repeat that? Anterior division is made up of your spongy and bulbar urethra at the level of the urogenital diaphragm. So if we ever describe an anterior urethral tear, we're either talking about a tear that occurs somewhere on the spongy urethra or on the bulb itself. The posterior division of the, the urethra comprises of the membranous urethra and the prostatic urethra. In your posterior tears, the membranous urethra is the one that's damaged like literally 90, 99% of the time. Um, it's very rare to have the prostate, um, having a prostatic urethral tear without having blood vessels being damaged and the patient actually running the risk of bleeding out. Are we okay with this portion so far? Good. So let's say we have a case that has a posterior urethral tear. What are we, which part of the urethra are you focusing on? Membranous. If it's an anterior tear, what are we looking at? Spongy, perfect. Now we go to anterior urethral tears. Now there are two different subgroups to this anterior urethral tear. One group occurs whenever you have box fascia intact. You can have tearing with, let's, and box fascia maintains its integrity. The other variant is when box fascia has been ruptured. Um, whenever box fascia is um, maintained or it's not injured during the urethral tear, urine is limited to the, to the penis itself, or fluid, blood, is limited to the penis itself. If box fascia is ruptured, it's going to leak into that space that's there, that virtual space that's there between Coley's fascia and box fascia, and it's going to occupy the entire area where we have free space under Coley's fascia. That area is going to start at the level of our perennial body, make its way up along the ischiopubic ramus, trace along the inguinal ligament, move superiorly until it meets the fascia of the anterior abdominal wall. With box fascia rupture, um, ruptured, we get that classic butterfly ecchymosis that we talk about. With the anterior urethral tear, whenever box fascia is intact, urine is limited to the penis only. These little details will be in the exam questions whenever you get them. Here's another one, it's showing us with, um, this is the image showing us an anterior urethral injury with box fascia ruptured or injured. And as you can see, it occupies the entire space where Coley's fascia is. And you'll notice again, we've also highlighted the penis because Darto's fascia is the continuation of Coley's fascia. Are we okay with that? Perfect. Now when we're looking at a posterior urethral tear, we're looking at somewhere beyond or before the urogenital diaphragm. It means we're going to be in one of them pouches somewhere back there. So with the posterior urethral tear, one of the signs that we see is the high-riding prostate. Posterior urethral tears don't just occur spontaneously, they're from trauma. It has to be high energy. So some kid who's skateboarding in the park and he straddles like one of those rails, and we looked at those videos on YouTube. Somebody who's um, experimenting on a bicycle, or you had a bad interaction with Chuck Norris and you took a couple kicks to the groin. It is possible. Yeah, so um, we usually see it associated with severe trauma. Whenever it does occur, because of the location of the membranous urethra, blood is going to accumulate in the pouch and eventually, or urine can also accumulate in the pouch, and eventually as its volume increases, it starts to push the prostate up and we get what's described as a high-riding prostate. Um, previously, 
the DRE used to be used to diagnose the high-riding prostate. However, um, recently there were, um, the protocols have changed and we no longer use it directly for it. Um, it can be done still, but it's not common practice anymore, simply because we have ultrasounds and we have different imaging modalities. We don't need to traumatize the patient any further. So, with this posterior urethral tear, the membranous urethra is affected, and you get that high-riding prostate. High-riding prostate is one of your key words in the exam, or a prostate that cannot be palpated on DRE. Another key word would be which portion of the urethra is also affected. If it mentions membranous, then you know it's posterior tear, and you know that that prostate is going to go up. Let's do a question, for God's sake. Again, another 15-year-old boy. These kids are <laughs> wiling. What's our best two choices so far, guys? I agree with you. Which way are we leaning? Convince me. So he presents to the emergency department with swelling and ecchymosis in the scrotum, penis, and anterior abdominal wall. Perfect. So it means box fascia has been injured or box fascia has been ruptured. 75%, not too bad. Are we okay with that question, guys? Um, I noticed that B and C have the, the best distribution. The membranous urethra, I attribute that to just reflex clicking. Um, spongy is not a bad option, however. If it were box fascia, if box fascia were not injured, what would we see? Extravasation limited to where? Beautiful. Blood supply. We have already touched a little bit on it. Um, I'll be going into a little bit more detail. So our blood supply, if you notice, our, the question mark is at the level of the internal iliac artery. If you notice, this isn't a symmetrical cut where we have gone straight through the midline of the pelvis. We are just paralateral, just paramedial. If you notice, most of the testes are, both testes are intact. So you'll notice from your internal pudendal artery, as it descends, it's going to give you an inferior rectal artery, and from there, it's going to go on to give you perennial branches. Those perennial branches will supply the perineum, give you the posterior scrotal artery, and a main trunk or a main, the, the artery is going to continue anteriorly to become the dorsal artery of the penis. Now, that dorsal artery um, is going to divide. You have superficial group, which does the skin, and then you have it dividing, um, giving you your two deep dorsal arteries, which are found inside of your corpus cavernosum. Like we said before, those deep arteries, they give you a group that ends as cap capillaries inside of the open spaces, and the other group represents the helicyne arteries. The helicyne arteries are normally extremely coiled. Um, in their walls, they have this layer of muscle, which is called an intimal cushion, which responds to parasympathetic signals. Whenever the, um, the parasympathetics get there, it causes immediate relaxation. They begin to uncoil and dilate, and they begin to bring more blood into the penis itself, starting the erection cascade. In, in terms of its venous drainage, its venous drainage is almost going to mirror 
the arterial supply, with the exception that you only have one deep dorsal vein, but you have two deep, dorsal, um, two deep arteries. So there's one deep dorsal vein and there's one superficial vein which is going to drain the skin. The deep one is what drains all the blood from the penis. Um, during priapism, it's usually a clot in that deep dorsal vein that causes the priapism or blood to not flow back. From there, you can have blood moving into the prostatic plexus of a cycle plexus, and eventually it makes its way to the internal pudendal vein itself. Here we're looking at the perineum again, and we have perennial arteries, which is a branch of your internal pudendal arteries supplying the musculature, the skin, and all the connective tissue and all that good stuff in the perineum itself. It also goes on, um, you also have an inferior rectal branch, which is going to do the perianal ring and the distal parts of the rectum itself. These arteries, um, as they move towards the bulb of the penis, is going to give you the artery of the bulb of the penis, which supplies the bulbospongiosus muscle and the tissue structures that are within, within the, um, the bulb itself. In males, the artery of the bulb of the penis, oh, oh sorry. In males, the artery of the bulb of the penis, the urethral artery and deep artery of the penis, um, those are all going to come from your pudendal artery. So something to remember. We go on to autonomic innervation. So um, we can remember P for point and S for shoot. So parasympathetics is going to make you point. It gives you the erection. Sympathetics, it's going to produce the ejaculatory reflex. All of those fibers are going to come, get into the pelvis by that nerve arrangement that we described yesterday. The signals are going to come from your hypogastric plexuses, your pelvic splanchnics, sacral splanchnics, and so on. The parasympathetics that produce the erection, they're going to travel via what's called cavernous nerves. And those cavernous nerves get their parasympathetics from the um, pelvic splanchnics themselves. Um, please remember that, yeah? So you have cavernous nerves, which supplies the blood vessels in the corpora cavernosa, and then you have the, th those come get their parasympathetics from pelvic splanchnics. These pelvic splanchnics, they travel through the prostate walls to make its way down to the penis, and that's where you can have them becoming interrupted during BPH or prostatic cancer, producing the erectile dysfunction. Once those parasympathetic fibers get to the helicine arteries, they are going to dilate, their blood flow is going to increase, and they start dumping blood into the corpora cavernosa. As the corpora cavernosa grows, what, you'll, what we'll see is the spaces begin to dilate. And as they dilate and dilate, it eventually compresses the deep dorsal vein, which restricts its blood flow or retrograde flow back to the venous system. So you won't be able to get an erection unless that deep dorsal vein has been blocked by the growing tissue itself. If you have an erection that lasts more than four hours, according to every Viagra commercial we've seen, it's called priapism, and you should report to a doctor. <laughs> there are some cases where you can have, in, in fact, um, I had a friend who, who had it. He's re he, he died a few years ago, so I can talk about him now. But... Um, his problem was he did not want to go to a physician, and it's a problem that we have with a lot of our male patients. It's, it's not a funny story. It's actually sad. For shame or fear or embarrassment, he refused to go. In the end, um, before, thank God he didn't get necrotic. I don't know what he would have done. But in the end, they had to go in, literally cut the dorsal vein, and remove the clot. And if you go on, online, you'll see surgeries where they remove the clot. It comes out like, almost like a string or a rope. Yeah. Are we okay with the mechanisms for, eject, uh, for erection? Good. So again, we'll just recap. 
Erection is going to be mediated by the parasympathetic nervous system, via the pelvic splanchnic nerves. Those pelvic splanchnic nerves, their signals are going to get to the corpora cavernosa via cavernous nerves. Ejaculation. Ejaculation has two phases. One of them is called the emission phase, and the other one is called the expulsion phase. During the emission phase, um, sympathetic innervation dominates. During that point, as the sympathetic tone increases, the parasympathetic tone subsequently or consequently decreases. As a result, you lose the erection once ejaculation occurs. The emission phase is where you have the production of all your fluids. So your testicular fluid, seminal fluid, and so on, prostatic fluid all increase during the emission phase. These fibers are going to be mediated by the fibers that come from your inferior hypogastric plexus. During that time, because we have sympathetics dominating the tone during um, ejaculation, the parasympathetic tone, which has subsequently been erased or depressed, causes um, the internal urethral sphincter to close, so the bladder will not be able to void. This is the reason why you cannot ejaculate and urinate at the same time. During ejaculation, sympathetics dominate. As a result, internal urethral sphincter is closed. Once parasympathetics um, are dominating, the sphincter can release. And for those of us, we notice once, like in the morning, when we have that transition in tone, for example, you just wake up from a state where parasympathetics were dominating your physiology, and you wake up and you have sympathetics where your heart rate increases, you start getting excited about coming to class, and you have to pee. Similarly, whenever the sympathetic tone decreases, like if you're chilling in your room or you're bored or you're getting sleepy, parasympathetics, as they increase, can cause the erection spontaneously without stimulation. The expulsion phase, this is where we're going to have rhythmic contractions of your bulbospongiosus and ischiocavernosus muscle. These are um, fibers that are transmitted via your pudendal nerve. Again, sympathetic fibers will help um, control the blood flow in, the, in that area. Pudendal nerve mediates those contra uh, contractions. Here, you're going to have the semen being expelled. It's going to be dumped into the prostatic urethra, and from there, it makes its way on out. That's the end of our lecture, guys. Um, I hope we kept it as simple as possible. My advice to you when you're studying this, stick to the objectives that are listed in the lecture. If you can go through a lot of supplementary reading and get lost in it. Have a good day, guys. See you tomorrow. Thank you. Session.